Coming up next on Passion Struck. So many people spend so much time on Instagram and following influencers and being influenced by influencers in their shopping habits or their parenting habits or their health habits. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't really think about in a really thoughtful way, at least until the past few years. And I wanted to dive in and really explore it because I have seen how influencers and following influencers have impacted me in so many ways and so many of my choices in terms of how I dress, how I cook, how I work out, how I parent. But there isn't a lot of actual thoughtful analysis of the industry itself. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 304 of Passion Struck, consistently rated by Apple as one of their top 10 most popular health podcasts. And thank you to all who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. In case you didn't know it, Passion Struck is now on syndicated radio on the AMFM 247 broadcast network. Catch us every Monday and Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Links will be in the show notes. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Or you simply want to introduce this to a friend or family member, we now have episode starter packs, which are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topics to give any new listener a great way to get acclimated to everything we do here on the show. Either go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. In case you missed it, earlier this week, I had some great interviews. First was with Hal Hirschfield, who's an accomplished professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. We discussed his new book, Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today. I also interviewed Sally Jenkins, New York Times bestselling author and a powerhouse in the world of journalism with over two decades of experience as a columnist and feature sports writer for the Washington Post. We discussed her newest book, The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and life. And if you liked either of those for today's episode, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating and review. That goes such a long way to bringing more people into the Passion Struck community where we can bring them weekly doses of hope, meaning, and inspiration and teach people how to live a limitless life. And I know our guests love to hear from you too. Now let's talk about today's episode. I've recently done a number of episodes on the impact of digital addiction. Today, I'm going to look at another side of this, Instagram and its influencers. Countless hours of our daily lives are dedicated to indulging in the infinite scroll of Instagram. It's remarkable to think that 15 years ago, influencers were non-existent. But today, they wield a significant influence over how we cook, consume, parent, decorate, think, and ultimately live our lives. However, despite their pervasive presence in our daily routines, the inner workings behind the meticulously curated Instagram grids that captivate us remain largely shrouded in mystery. Thankfully, that veil is about to be lifted. My guest today, Stephanie McNeil, a senior editor for Glamour Magazine and former cultural reporter for BuzzFeed News, takes us behind the curtain 
into the secretive real world of influencers in her book, Swipe Up for More, Inside the Unfiltered Lives of Influencers. Delving deep into the lives of three prominent influencers, namely Caitlin Covington from Southern Curls and Pearls, Myrna Valerio, the running advocate, and the original mommy blogger, Shannon Bird, McNeil offers an unprecedented glimpse into their journeys. Drawing from three years of immersive reporting, we discuss how these influencers construct their empires, grapple with critics and cynics, assert their creative autonomy in the face of tech platforms that facilitate their businesses, navigate public parenting, all while maintaining their impeccable appearances. We delve into why there is a notable presence of Mormon mommy influencers, what the experience is like for those working with highly popular influencers, how influencers manage the abundance of free merchandise they receive, the inner workings of brand partnerships, and perhaps most intriguingly, the realities of their earnings. Stephanie McNeil is an alumna of the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, where she received her BA in Broadcast and Digital Journalism with a double major in International Relations. Thank you for choosing Passionstruck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so excited today to welcome Stephanie McNeil to Passionstruck. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, I understand you grew up in Southern California and that your parents are both Naval Academy graduates like I am. And when I first got out of the service, the first place I moved to was actually San Diego, which I think is where you're from. Yeah, you and my parents have a lot in common. We They moved to San Diego right after graduating from the Naval Academy, and then they both went into the reserves and stuck around there for more than 20 years. I grew up about an hour east of San Diego in the mountains of San Diego. Oh, so you were over by El Cajon area? Exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, what was amazing to me is I lived in La Mesa because at the time I was going to San Diego State, but I worked down at Point Loma and Coronado. And it was so interesting how there could be a 40 to 50 degree temperature change practically between the coast and coming home. Yeah, absolutely. It was so hot where I went to high school in El Cajon. And then I lived about 30 minutes east of that, actually. So the temperatures up there were even more extreme, isn't the right word, but we definitely got semblance of seasons. My mom's from the East Coast and really liked feeling like she had seasons in California. So we would get snow every four years, maybe, but it would, the temperatures would get cold and yeah, it was really hot in the summer. So that's funny. A lot of people have no idea when I say alcohol or anything like that. So it's funny <laughs> <for> that. <laughs> well, what was one of your favorite things about San Diego? Oh, gosh, everything. San Diego is a great place. It is just a very laid back lifestyle. I think everyone is, for the most part, pretty chill, which sounds very California of me to say, but it's just an easy life. I think the antithesis of New York, because not only do you have to deal with all the different weather and it still irritates me that I have to think about what I wear when I step outside. I just don't want to think about it. And I don't have to worry. I don't want to have to put a coat on or anything like that. I think it's, it's just easy and it's nice. You don't really have to worry about extreme except for unfortunately the droughts and the fire seasons and stuff that's happening i like the southern california lifestyle i've lived in brooklyn i live in brooklyn now and i've lived in new york for about 10 years but definitely a california person for sure 
Well, prior to starting this whole passion struck endeavor, I was doing fractional work where I would come into companies and I'd be a fractional CEO or chief marketing officer, chief information officer, et cetera. And I happened to be doing that for a company called Bold Business. And I had never thought in a million years that I was going to start getting into the publishing world, but the owner of that company used to own CEO Magazine and he wanted to try to replicate it. So we started two publications of our own. One was called Bold Business and the other one was called Project Bold Life. And interestingly enough, we were trying to utilize a lot of the concepts that BuzzFeed did as a guideline to how we were trying to build those brands. I wanted to ask you, how does BuzzFeed create network-specific content to be consumed within social media? Because they really did it differently than everyone else. My former boss, Ben Smith, he just wrote a book all about BuzzFeed and how they use the social web to drive traffic and the history of the company. I think the main philosophy that I gleaned from working there for so long was the concept of shareability. And that's what makes people want to share content. And that's not just articles, that's videos, photos, silly emails, memes, this idea that people want connection and people almost want a reason to connect with their friends. And it's really true. If you think about the people in your life, I live in Brooklyn and I have friends and family all over the country. And sometimes rather than just checking in with them and saying, hey, how are you? What are you doing today? It's a lot easier just to say, hey, I saw this really funny video or I saw this meme or something like that. And you think about how much conversation that drives That's the spirit that BuzzFeed, especially in the early days, really captured and was able to use to its advantage, not in a nefarious way, but in a way that really cultivated this big community of users and subscribers and followers. At least from my vantage point in working there for so long, that's what I took away from it. And that's what I always think about when there's all these questions about my work in digital media. So it's all about how do we get people to read? Do we need to do these tips and tricks? And I'm a big believer that you really just have to create things that create conversation and things that make people want to share. And that can be a list of your favorite designer purses, or it can be a 10,000 word article that's really compelling. But either way, creating that connection in that moment is a really good way to make content that resonates with people. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. 
During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. Yeah, and I understand that uh, recently, as of April, there have been a number of changes in the company. What's the latest on BuzzFeed News? Yeah, so I actually work at Glamour Magazine now. I started in the end of March, so I left BuzzFeed News shortly before they decided to shut down the department in, I think it was April 20th. So yeah, that's obviously a huge bummer, and it's a huge loss, I think, for the company in the world. I learned a lot there, and I think it really created a really compelling style of journalism that we see the DNA of all over the media, from the New York Times to major magazines. I work with people all over Condé Nast, where I now work, who used to work there. So yeah, I think it did make a really big impact. Yeah, well, I found it was interesting how in just such a short time, he eclipsed maybe even doubled the volume that Huffington Post had with BuzzFeed. So really did play such a significant role there for a period of time. Well, you've been writing and blogging about bloggers and influencers, if I have it right, since about 2016. And I wanted to ask you, what is the most surprising thing that you've uncovered about Instagram versus reality from engaging and thinking about your subjects? I think the most surprising thing is exactly how much money you could make. I think people don't really get it because I think that one thing that people don't think about when they think about the influencer industry is the advantage for corporations. And I discuss this in my book, but I think people are really confused as to why influencers make money, why people want to pay them. But if you look at it from an economical perspective, if you're a corporation like Target or Walmart or something like that, your return on investment with working with an influencer versus doing a traditional ad campaign or doing some sort of celebrity endorsement is very high compared to a very low cost. But instead of them paying an ad agency who has all these other people they're paying, they're only really paying one person. So I'll give you an example. So if you're Target, say, and you want to do a line, you want to promote a line of Tupperware, let's say. You could do a whole ad campaign, and I don't think they would do this, but this is just an example I came up with off the top of my head. You could do a whole ad campaign about your Tupperware, and you could spend a million dollars on this campaign. And 
it could be a great campaign. You're not only paying everyone in your advertising department in-house, maybe you're bringing in another ad agency, you're hiring models, you're hiring videographers, you're hiring photographers, you're hiring makeup, you're hiring hair, you're hiring post-production people. So it's this huge spend to get in front of 500,000 people for this ad campaign. Or you could pay an influencer who most of them shoot at least some of their campaigns themselves, or they just have one photographer or one videographer. Most of them do their own hair and makeup. The thing with the companies is they say, hey, influencer, do an ad campaign for our Tupperware. And here's some notes. Here's like what we want to do. Come back to us with some footage or whatever. But then they just let them do it. They don't have to have all these other moving parts in it. So even if they pay the influencer a fraction of the million dollars they would have spent on that ad campaign, let's say they pay the influencer $20,000, that is such a deal for them to hypothetically get the same number of eyeballs because an influencer who has a million followers, you might get a million views on your ad or you might get 500,000 views on your ad, which is the same you could hypothetically get from a print or a TV ad or some other social media ad on your own accounts. So think about it from that perspective. I think people get really just aghast at the idea that, oh my gosh, an influencer is doing an ad campaign for a brand where they make a video and some photos, which takes a lot of work, but they're getting paid $20,000 for that ad. Well, yeah, because they're doing all of the work that someone that 50 people have to do. Obviously, I'm simplifying in various ways. I wouldn't say the production value is exactly the same, but a lot of these companies are beginning to think the ROI is the same. And that's the key. So I think what people kind of misunderstand is influencers are making so much money because there's such a high return on investment for brands. And they can do a lot of these campaigns. So they are making a lot more money than people realize. And I've asked people point blank to tell me how much they make in a year. They won't. I would say most major influencers with about half a million followers, I've been told and I read in my book, can make about minimum $10,000 per ad. And so even if they're doing for a month, that's $40,000 in that one revenue stream alone. The craziest thing to me is just how lucrative this is and how it's just a very obvious win for companies. And I think people are just completely in the dark and they don't really understand the process and they don't understand how lucrative it is and why. Well, we're going to be talking a lot more about that. And today, the majority of the discussion is going to be about your brand new book, which comes out this week called Swipe for More, Inside the Unfiltered Lives of Influencers. And I thought a great starting point in discussing the book, and you just tapped into it a little bit, is for you to go through what you define by influencers and how an influencer differs from, let's say, a video creator. Yeah, so I, in the book and elsewhere in my reporting, really try to differentiate between different types of people that make money making content on the internet. And I think it's important to put them into these categories because the businesses operate slightly differently and 
It's just like looking at movies and TV, for example. Everyone in a movie and a TV is an actor. They can move in and out. You know, they are different industries and it's important to examine them differently. There are people that write whole books about TV and movies and vice versa. So video creators tend to be people who started on platforms like Vine or YouTube. And I think one key thing to know about them is they got a lot of their start with virality. So these are people who a lot of their success comes from these big videos with huge numbers, getting 10 million views, tons of subscribers, and YouTube culture kind of evolved to feed that beast, so to speak, where people are constantly outdoing themselves. And you see this DNA on TikTok now as well, where people are doing big kind of event style videos and there's feuds and there's pranks and there's really ratcheting up this energy to get more and more views. So influencers, on the other hand, are people who started with usually blogs or some other form of writing style. They tend to have less followers in general. They're not searching this big virality or this big moment of viral fame per se. And they are more valuing a consistent relationship with their audience. So if you think of video creators making something that's akin to the big TV show that everyone wants to watch, influencer is more looking to create Vogue, a big magazine that people are going to be extremely devoted to, that they're going to come back to again and again, and that they are going to seek advice about for different parts of their lives. So influencers don't necessarily seek to have the top video with the most views. They seek to have a core audience where people are coming back to them again and again. Get ready for an uplifting experience with Coached Soul. Join us as we bring you the dynamic duo of Steve Hudgens, a licensed professional counselor, and Kenya Evelyn, a transformational leadership coach. Together, they'll guide you through engaging episodes filled with valuable insights and actionable tips on mental health, relationships, self-care, emotional well-being, and personal growth. Coached Soul is your go-to podcast for empowering discussions that will help you thrive, where we aim to empower and uplift you on your journey towards personal growth and well-being. Remember, as you navigate through life, you don't have to do it alone. We encourage you to reach out to professionals, seek support from loved ones, and take the time to prioritize your own well-being. Stay tuned for future episodes filled with even more valuable insights and actionable tips. Remember, you have the power to thrive. And with Coach at Soul by your side, anything is possible. Until next time, take care, stay empowered, and keep shining your brightest light. For more information, contact coachedsoul.com. Okay. So how would you view someone like me, for instance? So I have the podcast channel. I have three YouTube channels over half a million followers on Instagram, a few hundred thousand on LinkedIn. I do both in a way, but I've never really looked at myself as an influencer. <laughs> I just look at myself as someone who's been trying to go out there and help people 
live their lives in a better way? Well, so that's a really interesting question because the two subgroups that I just explained really were prominent, especially in these distinct ways in the beginning of the influencer slash creator economy. So in the early 2010s, in the mid 2000s, when this industry was really growing, there were these really two distinct types of groups. And they still exist today. But one thing that influencers have brought and video creators as well have brought to culture is every single industry now incorporates parts of being an influencer and being a video content creator. So before the internet, you could have done the same thing that you're doing, but maybe you would have had a radio show or you would have published books. But because we have so many of these tools at our disposal, because video creators and influencers have built these mechanisms that we can promote our work and connect with audiences and share thoughts and writing and speaking and all of that. Now, so many different industries can tap into the influencer model to share their work. So journalists in some ways now are influencers. There are so many things. I published a story earlier today And I'm on my Instagram sharing it and talking to people just like an influencer would do about something they were promoting because I'm copying them in a way in order to connect with my audience. So to answer your question, I think you're definitely an influencer in your own way. But that term now touches so many of us. I'm an influencer. You can make the argument and I have that politicians are now tapping into influencer ways as well. And who do you think really runs the influencer industry? Who runs the influencer industry? I think this is a really broad term, but women. (laughs) And I think that's one thing that I really hope people take away from my book is there are not many industries in the world that are created by and for women that make this much money. And I think now there are so many mechanisms. There's Companies have whole influencer marketing teams where they reach out to influencers. Those are mostly young women. I know that's broad. I can get more specific if you'd like. Well, I'm more interested, I would say, in why your goal in writing this book was to bring the multi-billion dollar influencer industry to life as its own entity. I didn't see that anyone had really done it before. There have been books about Instagram, great books about Facebook. There have been books about the the platforms. And I think that a lot of writing about the internet in general does focus on the platforms and rightfully so. Mark Zuckerberg's a character. There's a lot of intrigue there. But without influencers and all of us, Instagram wouldn't have anything to put on its platform. And I think that really gets ignored. I think a lot of times people spend so much time on Instagram and following influencers and being influenced by influencers and their shopping habits or their parenting habits or their health habits. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't really think about in a really thoughtful way, at least until the past few years. And I wanted to dive in and really explore it because I have seen how influencers and following influencers have impacted me in so many ways and so many of my choices in terms of 
how I dress, how I cook, how I work out, how I parent, but there isn't a lot of actual thoughtful analysis of the industry itself. So that's why I did it. And hopefully I succeeded in my (laughs) What does it mean to you then that this cohort of, let's say, women is driving so much of our purchases, our thoughts, and our lives? And how does it impact mainstream female culture today? I think that it's a lot more democratic because since there is such a lower bar to entry in getting into an influencer role, I think it has really changed how so many industries operate. One of the things I discussed in the book, and full disclosure, I work at a women's magazine. I I love journalism. I love magazines. One of the women that I interviewed in the book tried to break into the magazine industry when she was in her early 20s and just graduated from college. And on paper, she's a very stereotypical person. He would think, oh, yeah, she definitely could work in the magazine industry. But she couldn't afford to live in New York on the salary that an entry-level job paid her. So she ended up making her Instagram account and her blog. Now she's one of the biggest influencers. She's essentially created her own online magazine. And another one of the women I interviewed in the book was a plus-sized runner. And she wrote a blog about how she doesn't feel like she needs to be the stereotypical Nike, just do it, like no pain, no gain runner. She really loves to run and exercise for pure pleasure and enjoyment of the outdoors. And because her blog resonated with so many people that didn't see that representation in mainstream media, in mainstream advertising for sports, she really became a big and powerful influencer to the point where Lululemon was essentially begging her to be the face of their brands because they realized they had this huge untapped market. She gave them a hard time because they have had not great representation in the past. And she was, okay, like I'm going to interview you and make sure that this is something that you're actually committed to. She has been able to bring the concerns of her community and people like her directly to Lululemon. And now she's on billboards. She's in all of their ad campaigns. And that's to me is a very tangible way that influencer culture is impacting our culture because it's showing so many more different things that can be prevalent in fashion and beauty and clothing and wellness there's only so many voices that there's only so so many mainstream media outlets. And I think influencers have really democratized that in a sense. Well, you start out the book by talking about what I'll call a pilgrimage of sorts to visit the land of Mormon influencers in Utah. Yes. (laughs) And it's interesting because you meet with one and you were given a tour of mega houses that many of the influencers there own. Why is Salt Lake City such a haven for mommy bloggers? So that's the million dollar question. And one of the men I interviewed in the book, whose wife is a mommy blogger, gave me what he thinks is his explanation, which I think it makes a lot of sense, which is many millennial Mormon women 
were raised in the 90s and the early 2000s. And that was a time where I grew up in that era as well. And there was this big emphasis on female empowerment and girls, women who work. And there was very much a anything a boy can do, a girl can do mentality. And that element of culture where I think many more millennial women do work outside the home than our mothers did or our grandmothers did, shaped against the expectations of Mormon culture, which is you settle down, marry young, have kids, become wives. And so many of these women were in their early 20s and were having babies and were married and weren't working outside of the home. They were highly educated. They were really motivated. They were really entrepreneurial. And blogging was a fad in the mid 2000s and early 2010s. And many of them started blogging as a creative outlet, as a business oriented outlet, or just for fun. And corporations, again, they spotted basically a gold mine because I think this is changing a little bit, but a lot of corporations that sell things for kids and parents, they are going to gravitate towards very beautiful, young, well-dressed, well-made-up, nice hair, good-looking moms. And it was just a match made in heaven where all of these baby brands and maternity clothes brands and all this stuff really wanted to work with these women who had these big followings blogging about their lives. And because these women were savvy and realized quickly this could be turned into a real business opportunity, it just exploded. And then if one person does it, another person can do it because as the person I interviewed told me in their community and the Salt Lake City and the suburbs, it's a very tight community. Many people there are Mormon and it's just a very tight knit, close community. The people who were getting really big on the internet, it's not like it's a celebrity in Hollywood. This is the girl that you went to middle school with or the girl who lives down the street. So if you're a entrepreneurial young mom as well, and the girl that you knew from high school is making a ton of money doing it, you're oh, well, I could probably do that. This seems attainable. This isn't something where I have no shot getting in. If she could do it, I could do it. And he compared it to the Silicon Valley. It's like, why is the Silicon Valley? Why is there so many startups in the Silicon Valley? Because it just gets the culture breeds on itself. One person does it, then another person does it. Now all these people are doing it. So that was his explanation. And I think that's a really good explanation. And I think the LDS community has always been very pure and good advocates for the joys of homemaking, the joys of motherhood. It's something that's very valued in their culture. And I think they have used that and used these things that they enjoy and love and been able to turn it essentially into a business opportunity. That's what I think makes sense, but other people might have other opinions as well. (laughs) Well, throughout the book, you end up profiling three of these influencers, and I'm going to tackle each one individually. And since we started talking about Salt Lake, I will start with Shannon Bird. And I was hoping you could tell the audience, who is she and why is she the Adam Sandler of mommy bloggers? (laughs) So Shannon Bird, like I mentioned, is a mommy blogger. She is very 
typical to the persona I just described, where she grew up in the Salt Lake City suburbs. She was educated. She went to BYU. She was very motivated and ambitious, but also wanted to abide by the norms of her culture, wanted to be a mom, met her husband, Dallin, who was several years older than her when she was in her early 20s. And they married and had five kids essentially over the next decade or so. This example that I just said, she knew a pair of sisters who were starting blogs and had become very successful as mommy bloggers in the early 2010s. And they lived in her town and they said, hey, you should give this a try. You have young kids too. We're getting all this free stuff. We're getting all these deals to sell things. You should try your own blog. And so she started her blog and also her husband's from the East Coast. And so she thought it would be a good way for his family to keep up on her kids to see what they were up to. So she started her blog. And at the time, the image of mommy blockers, especially ones that are in the LDS church, was a very picturesque, sanitized, almost like a magazine style of blog where right now the trend is to be very open about everything and share everything. But back then that really wasn't the trend. It was more of this is something aspirational that you should look up to. So the children always looked very put together and everything was always great. And the photos were always beautiful. And that just wasn't really Shannon's style. She's a very confessional person. She is a very real person, a very authentic person. And she just thought it would be boring to post all these very quaint, luxurious images of her children. And so she just leaned into her zany side. And also she said, in hindsight, she had so many kids. She had all these young babies. She couldn't really put on even a facade that everything was perfectly serene all the time. So she adapted this persona as a messy mom. And she calls herself the Adam Sandler of mommy bloggers, like you described, where she has always loved to lean into these zany antics or messy dramas going on in her life. And it's won her a lot of support, but also a lot of haters who judge her, which I talk about in the book as well. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on two things based on what you just brought up. One of them is after I discovered who these people were, I went and looked at their profiles myself. And I noticed as you were talking about that, she does feature a lot of pictures of her kids. And I know in my case, uh, I have a son and a daughter. They're older now, but they have both asked me not to feature them in post without seeking their permission first, which means they don't get really featured at all, which I don't mind at all because that's their desire. But for mommy influencers, what are some of the ethics and challenges of featuring their kids? Yeah, it's a really thorny question for sure. I think one thing to remember is it's really easy to look at the past decade of mommy blogger culture and see what the internet is now and say, oh, I would never do that. I would never put my kids on the internet. There's like privacy issues. There's ethical issues. But when many of these women started out, the internet was not what it was. And they truly felt like they were just sharing with a very small group of people. 
And as the industry has grown and evolved and people started making real money off the images and videos of their children and people started to say, hey, are these children working? Are they not working? What's the line here? There has been a lot of discussion, especially in recent years of is this something that the state or federal government needs to regulate? Is this something that we should view as akin to that of a child actor where a child can only be in footage for X numbers of day or they need to have a water break or a certain amount of the proceeds made off their image needs to be set aside for their own profit eventually or in a trust or something like that. And a lot of people have brought up the law which regulates child actors, which is called the Coogan Law, which is the law that makes people take breaks on set. Babies can only be on set for a certain amount of time. Proceeds from their work need to put into a trust. And there has been a little bit of legislative rumblings in the past couple of years of trying to do a Coogan law for social media fame, but it's really tricky. And it also really runs the gamut. There are really exploitative, unfortunately, parents on social media who purposely put their kids in bad situations in order to get footage and views. There are there are people who share everything about their kids, including really intimate moments. There are influencers who don't share their kids' faces at all, don't share their kids' names, only refer to them by nickname. And I think it's tricky because I think, too, this is not a new problem. I think it is a very exacerbated problem by the internet, but women have used the persona of their family and children in creative work for a very long time. An influencer that I talked to about this issue last year said something like, I understand the ethical issues and I have certain boundaries. Like she also, now that her kids are older, will only feature them with their permission. But she said, I write my blog. It's creative writing about motherhood. I never put anything embarrassing or identifiable on my kids on there, but it's about me and it's about my memoirs of motherhood. And why is that different than someone writing a book and publishing it about motherhood? How is that different? And it is different in many ways. So it's a thorny issue, but it's not a new issue. It's just a exacerbated issue. And I think it's hard. I think I think we haven't figured out this in general. I don't think we've figured out child stars. There's been this whole push this year after Jeanette McCurdy's memoir came out that people are saying maybe children should not be in movies and TVs full stop. Is there a way to ethically have a child actor? Is there, and you could say the same exact thing. Is there ethically a way to have a child influencer or an influencer featuring their children? And I don't know if we've figured it out yet. I'm of the mind that leaving people to self-regulate is never going to work because unfortunately there are many parents out there who do not have their children's best interests at heart. But I do think there is a way to do it ethically. And I think people do it ethically every day. And then the final point I would make is we really don't know yet what the kids are going to think because this same influencer I just referred to who talked about the memoir is really one of the OG quote unquote mommy bloggers. Like she started way, way back 
and she's been doing it for almost 20 years at this point. And she has, I think, six kids. And some of them are now adults. Some of them are now in college. I think one of them is in his early 20s. And they, in many ways, don't really care, she said. And that's something actually we've seen with Gen Z is some Gen Z doesn't care. And obviously, there's a huge spectrum. But the truth is, we really don't know what the generation that is growing up online and that goes from my baby who's on my personal Instagram account all the way up to people who parents post them to a million followers a day. We don't really know. So I think that we're really going to have to see what the next generation says and then we can really put some good guardrails into account. The very short answer is I don't know. We need. I think we need to figure it out, but I don't know if anyone has a solution yet. Okay. Well, the second person you profile is Caitlin Covington, who's a stereotypical lifestyle and fashion blogger, but is one of the pioneers of the blogging industry. However, I found it interesting that in the book, you write that Caitlin hates to tell people that she's an influencer. Why is that? I think influencers have a bad rap. I think over the past couple of years, influencers have become a dirty word. The stereotype of them is almost like a sellout, a woman who doesn't have any marketable skills, but just sells their life on the internet for money. And I think the Kardashian backlash has trickled down to influencers where I think people think of influencers as mini Kardashians where they don't have any talent. They don't provide anything good to the world. And it's become a catch-all for the downfall of society through social media. And I'm sure influencers are the butt of a lot of jokes. So it's hard if you are an influencer because there's not another really word to describe yourself. <laughs> I think some people try content creator, but I think that is similarly mocked. So yeah, I think it's hard if your entire profession is is considered a joke, but I have seen a couple of influencers online say that they're trying to reclaim the word influencer as well. well and then lastly, you bring up a third influencer and hopefully I can pronounce her name correct. Myrna Valerio. Yeah, that's right. And you say that she represents an important part of the influencer industry that is rarely discussed. What is that? So, yeah, I mentioned her a little bit before, but I think people, again, when people think of an influencer, they think mostly about shopping, people selling a bunch of cheap clothes from China is something that I see a lot. It's such a big industry now. It's so broad. And I think people don't really think about niche influencers, which I think you could call yourself a niche influencer if you so choose with your podcast and your Instagram and all of that kind of stuff. But it's almost like being a thought leader in a certain realm. I really wanted to highlight Myrna because I think her story is so incredible and it shows how you can use the power of influence and influencing to not only make radical changes in your own life, but also bring your personal values and your message to a wider audience than you ever would have before. So I talked about the Lululemon example where she was able to manifest real change with Lululemon for her community, which are athletes, 
who are not a size two, who exercise for pleasure, not to change their bodies. And she really got to be in the room when they were designing new sizes for bigger athletes and really bring that issue to the forefront. But also it's been really empowering for her because she's someone who has a really unique story and really loves the outdoors and has been able to build this incredible life for herself. She was working as a teacher and doing good. She wasn't making teachers. They're not like rolling in the dough. And she's now hoping to build a house for her where all of her family can come stay and really build almost some generational wealth for herself. And I just thought it was a really incredible story. And I had followed her for a while. And I thought that's the part of the industry that people are missing is the ability to impact culture, the ability to influence change, but also the freedom that it is giving so many people. And I was doing an interview about the book a few days ago, and I want to bring up this point that the person I was talking to was saying that someone they knew was really annoyed because their children who were in college said to them, oh, I really think it'd be cool to be an influencer in XYZ realm. And their parents are, you know, clutching their chest. Oh, no, not an influencer. But if you look at it from the perspective of the next generation, it's really empowering to have the option to build your own business based on your interests and values. Because every single day you read about a new corporation doing mass layoffs, the tech industry is a mess, industry is a mess. Things feel really unstable right now. And I think for this next generation entering the workforce, it can be really empowering to have the option of, you know what, I don't need to work somewhere where I can be laid off and my computer shut off in a moment's notice, or I have to toil away and work for an abusive boss or for people of color. I don't want to work in a work environment where I have to deal with microaggressions on a daily basis. And I think it's really cool and it's really empowering. And I think that's one thing that I wanted to bring forth is see how this can be making a change for women, people of color, people of different body types who traditionally aren't seen as making it big in business, how it's really giving them a voice and a seat at the table and a chance to build something for themselves. Okay. And I know for me personally, I have had some issues with Meta and YouTube in them shutting down or making it harder for me to get my message out. And in the case of YouTube, I had an issue. When you upload a video, you're supposed to give it a rating. And I had done a story on a Jewish rabbi who had been molested when he was a child. It was not very graphic content. It was very slightly mentioned throughout the episode. And so I labeled the content as such that there was some mentions of it, but it was lightly mentioned. And YouTube ended up disagreeing and then threatened to cancel my whole account. And this is after I had put 450 videos up and turned off monetization for almost three months. And there's no repercussion for it. The answer you get back is our algorithm will decide when it's going to give you back the properties. And so I wanted to ask you the same question through that lens. How much power do you think Meta and YouTube have over influencers that use them? A huge amount. And that's one of the things I get into in the book as well is this has been in the news a lot lately and we're going back to BuzzFeed News, but 
many parts of content creation all across the board have been really cannibalized by the platforms. I'm talking YouTube, Google, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where they took over so much of online content. They really made it so they controlled the conversation for a really long time. How this applies to bloggers is that all the people that I talked to in my book started out as bloggers. And what that meant was they owned their URL, they owned all their content, it lived on their website, and they ran ads on a website that they controlled. So if something went wrong with the ad, they would have to contact their service provider, but it's not like they're going to wake up one day and their website is just going to be white. And if it does, they own the websites. They have a lot of way to fix ways to fix that. In the mid-2010s, there was this big push to the platforms. You need to put all your stuff on the platforms. You need to be on Instagram. You need to be on YouTube. And influencers really latched on to Instagram and Pinterest as a way to spread their content. But it cannibalized the entire internet So people stopped visiting blogs. They stopped doing all of these things where they were actually going to these websites that people owned and just started looking at everything on Instagram. And the problem was instead of building their business on a website that they owned, they were now building a a business on a website that someone else owned. And... There has not been, in my opinion, an adequate level of support for these people who have built their businesses on Instagram. And I did a piece about this for BuzzFeed News about two years ago. It's really hard now for influencers to break away from Instagram and go back to platforms that they control because most companies will pay so much more for an ad on Instagram versus an ad on a personal blog or a Substack or something like that. That is really bad because now there was an influencer I knew who has a million followers, has been in the industry for over 10 years. And one day she woke up and her Instagram was gone. And this wasn't just, oh no, where's my Instagram? She has a whole month full of business obligations that she needs to do. She has obligations to people she works with. Like she has to post on Instagram or else she's going to violate her contract. And the level of support that influencers have, and people are always surprised when I say this, is literally the exact same as anyone has. So if I wake up tomorrow and my personal Instagram with cat pictures is gone, I have to email help at Instagram and hope someone will respond to me. And if I have a million follower business Instagram account, the level of support is exactly the same. And that to me is a problem. Oh, and it's impossible to get to a human to discuss your issue. Well, Stephanie, I had one final question for you. And that is if someone was listening today or they pick up a copy of your book, what is the core message that you hope they get from it? I think the core message is influencers matter. I want people to make their own opinions. I don't want people to go away from it saying, 
oh, she's trying to say influencers are great or, oh, she's trying to say influencers are horrible. I think that people should decide on their own. But I think what I want people to come away with is this is something that we have to pay attention to because it's really impacting our society in a myriad of ways. And it is something that we need to think about critically. So yeah, influencers matter is my main pitch. Well, Stephanie, thank you for coming on the show. And if people wanted to learn more about you, where is a central place that they could do so? The best place is my Instagram account, which is at Steph E. McNeil. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and congratulations on your brand new book. Thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Stephanie McNeil, and I wanted to thank Stephanie Penguin Random House and Laura Monahan for the privilege and honor of having her appear on today's show. Links to all things Stephanie will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any of the books from the guests that we feature on the show. All proceeds go to supporting the show. Videos are on YouTube at both John R. Miles and Passion Struck Clips. I am now also, as I mentioned at the beginning, on the AMFM 247 National Broadcast, and you can listen to me every Monday and Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Links are in the show notes. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. You can find me on LinkedIn and sign up for my LinkedIn newsletter, or I'm on all those other social channels at John R. Miles, where I post weekly doses of inspiration, hope, and meaning. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview that I did with Emily Morse, who is a doctor of human sexuality and the host of the award-winning number one sexuality podcast, Sex with Emily, which has been on air for nearly two decades. And we discuss her new book, Smart Sex, where she distills her knowledge as a human sexuality expert into a groundbreaking framework that will revolutionize your understanding of sex and pleasure. Shame is a huge factor. We don't even realize how much of it is keeping us from having the conversations, being sexual, being in our bodies. And I actually talk about different kinds of shame in the book, break it into different ways that we experience it. And so once you start to look at that, you kind of recognize that it's literally everywhere. The thing about shame is the more we shed light on our shame, we learn to like kind of talk about this stuff. It does kind of go away. It's like shedding light on our darkness. It's so pervasive in uh, why we don't want to talk about sex, why we don't feel comfortable in our bodies, body shame. Shame is really heavy. Remember, we rise by lifting others. So share this episode with those that you love and care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, go out there and be passion struck. Mm -hmm.